Thank you all for joining us once again in this second episode on the sub-miniseries on the Sacrament of Penance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our previous episode, we spoke both from Scripture and from sacred tradition in order to recognize that the Church has most clearly does have the authority to forgive sins, that this is certainly an authority that Christ himself has given, very recognizable uh, and very obvious in chapter 20 of the book of John. As well, we see in Matthew in a couple of places the power of the keys as well as the the ability to bind and loose uh, being given over first to Peter and then to the apostles, and therefore we find that this forgiveness or binding and loosing of sins, this is something that certainly comes under the power of the keys. But binding and loosing, as I said, and we'll continue to discuss in further detail, also has to do with a couple of other things, like dispensation from various ecclesial laws, as I mentioned, about the Sabbath. And then secondly, it also would include the ability to bind and loose in terms of punishment for sin. Today, or this episode, we want to speak specifically about how the power of the church to forgive sins is unlimited, is necessary, and is judicial. So we will get as far as we can with discussing these three qualities, in a sense, of the authority of the church. First, the power of the church to forgive sins is unlimited. From Scripture, it is clear that Christ gives a very broad power to the church. He never qualifies his statements of forgiveness of sins by limiting the amount or the size of the certain sins. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, quote, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. End quote. Well, doesn't this scripture verse just contradict exactly what I just said? I just said that Christ doesn't speak of any kind of limitation to the authority of the church for giving sins. For instance, in John chapter 20, when he breathes on the apostles and he tells them before he ascends into heaven to the Father, that whose sins you forgive are forgiven and whose sins you bind are bound. He doesn't also say, however, you can't forgive murder. You can't forgive artificial contraception. You can't forgive X, Y, or Z. He never says that. He never limits it there. And that would seem to be the place that he would do so, but not necessarily. But then he does in Matthew 12, in an utterly different context, throughout the the, the length of the the, the preaching of his life on earth before his crucifixion and, and resurrection, he does mention that there is a sin that is unforgivable. What sin is this? We need to know this, it seems. Well, I, from my understanding, I don't know that the church has ever kind of nailed down any kind of dogmatic statement of sorts, what this is, but the vast majority of, of, of throughout the history of the church, with the vast majority of theologians from what I can gather, have all basically understood this sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit to be this obstinacy in sin. So, in what Christ says, we as the church cannot and should not understand that Christ is limiting the ability of the church to forgive a particular sin. Rather, the church's authority to forgive sin is unlimited in that every particular sin that a person commits 
is a sin that can be forgiven if confessed with a contrite heart and a desire to do better. However, the sin of uh, against the Holy Spirit is this obstinacy or this stubbornness in one's sin. So it is not saying that the church's authority is somehow limited in relation to this sin. It is saying that the problem, the block, the obstacle of the person receiving forgiveness is not a limitation on the church's part, but rather it is a limitation on the person's part. That that person is unwilling to cooperate with the grace of God that leads them to conversion of heart, that softens the hardness of their heart in order for them to confess well. As a result, that person puts an obstacle between them and the mercy of God, between them and the forgiveness that the church wants to pour out upon them by Christ working in the church. And as a result, then, that person is not forgiven because they refuse to repent, to open their hearts, to be contrite, and therefore to be converted and turned back towards Christ. So the limitation in relation to Matthew chapter 12 about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is on the part of the sinner, not on a limitation that does not exist on the part of the church. Christ is speaking to the Pharisees about the obduracy of heart. Just to kind of emphasize what I just said, recognize who he's talking to, understand the context that this teaching is taking place, in which this teaching is taking place. He's speaking to the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees are known, especially Christ is teaching us over and over again about the hardness of their hearts, that they want to live according to the letter of the law in the eyes of other people while their hearts are not with God. They are far from God because they don't have humility, because they don't truly love and serve God in the way that they should, but rather they follow the letter of the law in a way that only makes them look good. So their relationship with God, quote unquote, is more based on their own benefit rather than giving of themselves in true love to God in the way that they should. So they might fulfill parts of the law, but they fail in understanding and fulfilling the reality or the purpose of the law, which is always fulfilled in love. That is what Christ is teaching us. That is what we learn in Christ's life, death, and resurrection is love is the fulfillment of all of the laws that are necessary for us to hold. All of the Ten Commandments find their fulfillment on Christ crucified, who lovingly and self-sacrificially offers himself to God the Father in obedience to his will for the sake of our salvation and the mercy poured of, uh, from God poured out upon us. Therefore, again, because he's speaking of the Pharisees, it's easier for us to recognize he's talking about the obduracy of heart. He's talking about this stubbornness that Christ oftentimes speaks of in relation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who are rejecting him as the Messiah and who are blind to him being the Messiah because they're so concerned about their own popularity suffering or being di diminished as a result of Christ who is gaining this following. This is not to condemn in any way all of the Pharisees and Sadducees and whatnot. There are many Jews that fully did adhere to and follow the words of Christ in recognizing that he is the true Messiah. But there were many that didn't. So God's mercy is boundless as well. The authority that the church has in forgiving sins is also limitless. Never think that there is some sin, some big sin in your life that cannot be forgiven by the church. Never think that somehow the church's hands are tied in some way or another to some extent simply because there are such grievous sins out in the world. Nothing is more powerful than the mercy of our God. Nothing is greater than that mercy. 
But we must not be hard of heart to the extent that we fail to convert, can fail to cooperate with those graces that leads us to a true and contrite uh, confession of our sins. Secondly, the power of the church is necessary. The Council of, of Trent teaches us, quote, If anyone denies either that sacramental confession was instituted or is necessary to salvation by divine right, let him be anathema. End quote. And, quote, if anyone says that in the sacrament of penance it is not necessary of divine right for the remission of sins to confess all and each of the mortal sins which, after due and diligent previous meditation and are remembered, even those mortal sins which are secret and those which are opposed to the last two commandments of the Decalogue, as also the circumstances which change the species of a sin, but says that such confession is only useful to instruct and console the penitent, and that it was of old only observed in order to impose a canonical satisfaction, or says that they who strive to confess all their sins wish to leave nothing to the divine mercy or pardon, or finally that it is not lawful to confess venial sins, let him be anathema. End quote. Wow. There was a whole lot in that and probably confusing because the language uh, was, the language that is used is a little bit different than perhaps the way in which we talk in this era. So what is the Council of Trent saying? The Council of Trent is declaring that the sacrament of penance is necessary in in, in a particular way. It can be understood as necessary. It is necessary, one, as I've already discussed in our previous episode, for the sake of the church being able to fulfill the mission that Christ has given her in sending out the apostles to baptize all nations, to sanctify in essence, and to evangelize to all of the world. If we have no ability to forgive sins, then what are we here for? What are we doing? If, if we have no ability to counteract and fight against Satan on various levels, like through exorcisms and whatnot, but also through the actual forgiveness of sins, like Christ has clearly given to the apostles when he says, whose sins you forgiven are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained, then how are we able to fight against the, the, the powers of evil? How are we able to withstand all of the attacks of Satan and all of the army of the demonic? How are we able to overcome the evil one? And how are we able to bless and sanctify and purify souls by way of the sacraments? And in particular, for those that fall back into sin after their baptism, it is by way of the sacrament of penance. So the church, yes, finds it necessary for the sake of the forgiveness of sins in relation to her own mission. But secondly, there is also a type of necessity in relation to the, the sinner himself, that a sinner who is in mortal sin needs to confess his sins for the sake of being forgiven. Let me just read a little bit of that again. Quote, If anyone says that in the sacrament of penance it is not necessary of divine right for the remission of sins to confess all and each of the mortal sins which, after due and diligent previous meditation, are remembered, even those mortal sins which are secret and those which are opposed to the last two commandments, etc., etc., then let him be anathema. In other words, if somebody is saying that it's not necessary for you to confess all your mortal sins, don't worry about it. Just go to God individually. You don't need the sacrament of penance. That is wrong. It is directly contradictory to what the church teaches, clearly stating this in the the Council of Trent, even though for us in our era, because of the way we talk, it may not be that clear, but it is clearly stated in the Council of Trent.
Secondly, the Council of Trent also says, quote, This sacrament of penance is necessary unto salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, as baptism itself is for those who have not yet, as yet, been regenerated. End quote. The same council further declares that, quote, although it sometimes happens that contrition is perfect through charity and reconciles a man with God before this sacrament is actually received, the said reconciliation nevertheless is not to be ascribed to the contrition independently of the desire of the sacrament, which is included therein, end quote. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Keep in mind, we'll talk a lot about contrition in later episodes in this sub-miniseries. So I don't want to speak speak about this entirely. I'll briefly mention a, a, a quote about perfect contrition so that we have some concept of that as we continue forward. But before I do so, I want to be clear. When we're speaking about the necessity of the sacrament of confession on the side of the penitent, if I commit a mortal sin, I need to confess that mortal sin. Now, if you recognize from the previous quote of the Council of Trent, it says, after due reflection, in other words, after you have done the best that you can prayerfully to give consideration to the sins that you've committed since your last confession, you go, you need to confess every mortal sin that you can. And in fact, the church teaches us to do so in name and number. This means that we shouldn't just say, ah, I committed lust. No, you should specifically specify the sin for the priest. I used artificial contraception within my marriage three times. That is mortal sin. That is problematic. And therefore you name that to the best of your ability in remembering the name of the sin, as well as in how many times you've committed it since your last confession. This has been spelled out to us in the Council of Trent. It's something that we always uh, have held as a result of what has come to us since the Council of Trent, and nothing has changed that. It's not oftentimes taught, unfortunately, in the way that it should, but to make a good confession always specifically uh, say the mortal sins in name and in number to the best that you can. If you cannot remember, then saying, you know, several times since my last confession or something of this sort will help the priest to better understand at least the, the amount of times. Because this helps us, okay, is this person really have an addiction or is this just kind of a, a problem or did he just fall into this once or is this several times that he continues to fall into this over and over again? These kinds of things helps the priest to better understand the state of the soul and then to tailor some kind of uh, spiritual advice, perhaps some kind of spiritual direction, as well as to give a more appropriate penance to the person that is uh, confessing their sins. So what the church is saying is that the ordinary means in which a, a sin is forgiven, a mortal sin is forgiven, it is forgiven by way of being put under the power of the keys. That means being confessed in the sacrament of confession, going to the priest and confessing your sins with humble heart wanting to do better. However, the church also maintains clearly that a mortal sin or all mortal sins can be forgiven by, uh, by what's called an act of perfect contrition. Now, an act of perfect contrition is in essence saying a prayer or making some kind of act towards God, let's say fasting or something of this sort, in a way that is born entirely out of, perfect, out of this, this, this great love for God as Father. That you love God and because you've offended him, that's why you're sorry for your sins. That's the only reason why you're sorry for your sins. 
In other words, it's not born out of this true understanding that you could go to hell. It's not born out of this fear of hell or this desire for heavenly reward. It is rather born entirely out of your love for God. In other words, there is no amount of selfishness within that act of contrition. And that is a perfect act of contrition. Yes, sins through a perfect act of contrition can be forgiven. Well, hold on. I thought we just said that this is necessary to go and confess your sins under the power of the keys. In other words, in the sacrament of confession. There's a difference. What a, an act of perfect contrition contains is the desire to go to confession. And so God might forgive those mortal sins, but you still have that desire. A part of that act of contrition is the desire to confess your sins in the way that you should. And therefore, this means that still the power of the keys in relation to forgiving sins is a necessity both for the church to fulfill her mission, so on the part of the church, as well as on the part of the penitent that he confess every one of his mortal sins in name and number to the best of his ability in the sacrament of confession. Let us read this quote. This is from Poland Prouse, again, two theologians that I oftentimes use for the sake of these classes. Quote, perfect contrition affects the immediate justification of the sinner without the sacrament of penance. And we shall show presently, as we shall show presently. How can this extra sacramental efficacy of perfect contrition be reconciled with the dogma that the power of the keys is necessary for the forgiveness of sins? Again, mortal sins, that is what we are speaking about here. Why have recourse to the church if mortal sin can be forgiven by perfect contrition? Why even go? I don't want to go to the sacrament of confession and confess to some guy if I can do this all on my own. The answer is, as baptism is desire, excuse me, as baptism of desire justifies only when it includes a desire to receive the sacrament, so perfect contrition affects justification only when accompanied by a desire to receive the sacrament of penance. So, if you have watched the sub-miniseries on baptism. We spoke about baptism by blood, meaning martyrdom. We've spoken about baptism by desire and baptism by water. But baptism by blood, as well baptism by desire, this speaks of already having a desire for baptism. And that is what's necessary in order for that person to, in essence, be baptized by the sake of his desire. So in other words, a person that is on their way to baptism and gets killed, and, and that person's not baptized. Well, we've said baptism is necessary for salvation, but that person clearly had a desire for it, and the circumstances prevented that person from it. It wasn't that that person decided not to be baptized because he chose, ah, I don't like baptism or I don't believe in it or whatever. It's that the circumstances outside of himself, his own will, prevented him from it. But according to his will, he desired that. He submitted to God in essence. And therefore that person would be baptized as a result of the desire that he has. That is necessary for the, the graces, uh, the sanctifying grace, to enter in and cleanse the soul of original sin and these other things that separate that person from heaven. Likewise, an act of perfect contrition, for that to be truly an act of perfect contrition, it includes, it is accompanied by a desire for the sacrament of confession. This limitation did not apply to the Old Testament, those that didn't have the sacrament of confession, but since Christ in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, has established and instituted this sacrament of penance, then a part of the, uh, this, this act of perfect contrition means that it includes 
this desire for the sacrament. So in the Old Testament, by making an act of perfect contrition, which can only be done by the graces of God, it's us accompanying and cooperating with the graces of God. It's not something I can just decide one day, I'm going to make an act of perfect contrition. But when we cooperate with grace, this, this extraordinary grace that God gives at times and various times and various people to make this uh, act of perfect contrition, when we cooperate with that, then we are forgiven of our sins. But before the sacrament of, of penance was instituted by Christ in the Old Testament, they didn't have the sacrament. And so all that was necessary was this act of perfect contrition. Now, making an act of perfect contrition includes the desire for the sacrament of penance. Hence, the obligation of everyone who is guilty of mortal sin to have recourse to the power of the keys, that means to go confess their sins, is still essential. It is a necessary reality. But there is this act of perfect contrition that is a reality, but a desire for that. Now, I want to also make clear we're not speaking of an explicit Necessarily, we're not speaking of an explicit. So for us Catholics, yes, we need a part of making an act of contrition is to have this desire to go confess our sins. However, I think, I believe, I don't know that I've read this anywhere in particular, but this seems to hold true from everything else that we've seen in terms of the desire of baptism and these kinds of things, that when it comes to uh, a Protestant, let's say, that's in mortal sin and needs to be forgiven, or some other person that's in mortal sin that needs to be forgiven, that person does not go to the sacrament of confession, obviously. And so how are they supposed to have their mortal sins forgiven? How is it possible that a, a, a person that is baptized, that is not a part of the church, that does not go to the sacrament of confession, is able to get into heaven if they've committed a mortal sin since their baptism? How does that work? How is that even possible? We're not saying that it's absolutely impossible. We're saying that by God's generosity, he can offer graces that will, in essence, allow that person to be united to the church in this implicit desire. In other words, it's not explicit in the sense that they wouldn't say right then, oh, I want to go to the sacrament of confession and become Catholic right now, so much as they want to do everything that God wants them to do. They love God to a certain extent. To that, 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 that they, they want nothing of themselves, of their own pride and imperfections, but rather they want to give themselves so much to God, to that they have this implicit desire that if they were to, to be uh, receiving this kind of, let's say, apparition or, or this vision from an angel that explained to them the Catholic Church is true and that the sacrament of confession is important and these kinds of things, that they would run to the Catholic Church, that they would accept it. That's the kind of desire that I'm talking about. That through this desire, they have kind of this implicit desire to go to the sacrament of confession. And so perhaps a Protestant on their deathbed with mortal sin on their souls, it, we are not in any way suggesting that God could not save them, that, there is, that he's somehow beyond the realm of the power of salvation. But he would be saved through Holy Mother Church in this desire and the graces that God has given to them because these graces have come as a result of the masses and the sacraments and the prayers of the Holy Church, as well, that person has this kind of union with the church in that implicit desire that is stirred up by the graces that God has given in his mercy and in his generosity. So there is union within the church. That is, in theory, a possibility for sure. So never should we, in some ways, despair or in any way, despair of the salvation or the possibility of the salvation of a soul. 
inside or outside the church. Always we have this hope. As long as there is breath in our air, as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is hope in our souls for the salvation of particular persons that we know, particular persons that we have come in contact with. Always we hope in God. We always have hope for the salvation of persons, as I said, and therefore, although our theology is true and ancient and beautiful, we must also and always recognize that we only ever are able to see some small point or picture of it. So we do want to reject this idea that many people make, oh, well, God can save people however he wants. No, that is true. We're not arguing that, but we are saying that God did not reveal this theology to us, did not give us these teachings, did not give us these sacraments, only for him to go out and kind of throw them away so that he can go save whoever and whenever and wherever he wants to. We have this theology to help us to understand how God works and the way in which he does save souls. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense for us to say, well, he gives us these realities, but he just does whatever he wants to. I think that is so insufficient of an argument. It makes no sense. Rather, I think God is able to work within the context of the theology and the truths and the doctrines that he has given us in ways that perhaps go uh, or are hidden from our uh, limited view. And so we Though we have these truths, we don't know what all of this means in relation to God's freedom and ability and, and power to use and to, 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 to sanctify and to forgive within the context of what we have. And so, yes, we say the power of the keys, it is unlimited, and the power of the keys, it is necessary. The fathers taught that God does not forgive sins without the cooperation of the church. Again, reemphasizing both in scripture, but also in tradition, we have this recognition Confessing past mortal sins also is a good point. Give that consideration. And I'll go into that more because at the end of this entire sub-mini-series, I will kind of go through some of the points I think that are helpful for people to know in relation to making a good confession. In, ses in session 14, chapter 5, the Council of Trent also makes it clear that venial sins do not have to be confessed in the sacrament of penance. So that which must be given to the power of the keys is the, the mortal sins. That is what we're primarily uh, talking about. Venial sins, they can be forgiven in various ways. They can be forgiven through the proper use and making a humble act towards God in uh, using holy water. They can be forgiven in, uh, indirectly through receiving the Holy Eucharist in a humble way, in a devout way. They can be forgiven in simply making an act of contrition that is truly humble and devout as well. Making acts of charity can be certainly a way in which venial sins are forgiven uh, of our, of our, from our souls. Uh, so th we are primarily talking about the mortal sins. That's what's necessary in name and in number to confess. It is not necessary to mention venial sins. You can just not mention them if you don't want to. At the same time, there's great benefit to. I highly recommend that you mention your mortal sins, but you don't have to be detailed. You don't need to go into a four-minute conversation with the priest about what happened when you said this uh, this kind of small lie or something of this sort. Rather, you need to be, uh, you, you can simply say lying. Uh, and as long as those lies are not of grave matter or done in a way that elevates them to mortal sins, then you can just confess those in general as lying. It doesn't have to be, I lied seven times, etc. Name and number for mortal sins. Venial sins can be left out, but I highly recommend that you do not leave them out. We will in there and move into judicial uh, quality, this judicial quality of the power of the keys in relation to forgiving sins, the power of the church in her authority over sins in binding and loosing, forgiving or retaining. Then through this 
judicial quality, we will get to speak a little bit about understanding the sacrament of confession, both in relation to the tribunal as well as a medicinal, uh, ha having medicinal value for us. May God richly bless each of y'all. May the Blessed Virgin protect us by wrapping us in her mantle of love and placing us in the most sacred heart of her Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.